Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When I got out, I was released in Baltimore. Um, they gave me my $50. As um, soon as I left the facility, it started raining. And I was trying to figure out how to call. Like I had a phone number for like one of my friends to pick me up. But I was trying to figure out how I could convince someone to allow me to use their cell phone to call, right? There was no pay phones when I got out. They didn't, like, the pay phones were gone. And, and folks were, like, terrified. It was like, I'm, I'm not going to let you, what? No. What, why do you want to have a phone? And I didn't want to tell him, like, I just got out of prison. But I ended up offering a guy $10 for him to call my cousin on his phone, on the speakerphone. And he ended up, the guy was nice, too. And he ended up, like, not accepting the $10. But then when I got home... Um, you know, I just was like under a lot of anxiety because as soon as you get out, you got to check in with your parole officer, uh, like 24, within 24 hours. And then they're, they're telling you, you need to get a job as soon as possible, but you got to check in with them twice a week. So even if you get a job, you got to come in twice a week for your analysis and they make you pay for the urinalysis. Um, it's just a lot of expectations and it's kind of like they set you up to fail. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Chris, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your story uh, because of an article that you wrote on Medium about the books that changed your life in prison. And I remember reading through that, and my first reaction was, Jesus, this guy learned, learned to speak multiple languages, read all these books. Right. I went to Berkeley and I didn't do anywhere near that in four years of college. Uh, so we'll we'll get into all of that. But um, I think I, I want to start with what I think is a, a fitting question, one that I tend to ask a lot of people, and that is, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up impacting the choices that you ended up making throughout your life and your career? Got it. So gr- growing up, I, uh, my mom started her career um, as a nurse um, after she graduated from college. And then she went back to school and she got a couple of certifications, became a paramedic, and she pretty much worked in like the medical field, emergency response field for um, for like the rest of her life. And then mm-hmm. so my dad uh, was um, electrician, so he worked for an electric company, and so mm-hmm. that's what they did. Yeah. What what impact did they end up having on you in terms of the direction you ended up going? Well, my mom um, had to raise me uh, by by herself because my dad. Um, and my mom got divorced when I was eight months. And mm-hmm. so I, my, my father wasn't really a part of my life uh, growing up. And, but the impact that my mom had on me is like my mom, because she was a paramedic, she uh, worked 12 hour shifts. So I would stay with my grandmother um, mm-hmm. Monday through Friday and stay with my mom on the weekends. And so 
I would just, it was kind of like a hybrid. So my grandmother's neighborhood was like a really tough neighborhood in Washington, D.C. And this was like late 80s, early 90s. And my mom lived outside of D.C., Maryland, in a pretty like, you know, middle class neighborhood. It was nice. It was mixed. It was white people, black people. And everything was like really cool um, around there. But um, my mom, when I had time to spend with her, she instilled in me uh, a good work ethic, uh, entrepreneurship, and, and, and being nice and respectful. Mm-hmm. For the most part, at least initially when I was younger, yeah. like things changed at a certain point. Yeah. So I wonder what that point of change is, because I, I remember uh, there's something that you said in the book. And this is one of those things like I, I look at, I basically took everything that I highlighted and underlined and put it into a, a document. But you said, you know, when you start from a place like Division Out Avenue, life's fragile. You don't get to make mistakes because you don't have a safety net. Right. And, uh, you know, when I when I read that and I, I you know was going through the book, um, I remember going to to school in probably what was the worst neighborhood in uh, a place called Bryan, Texas. And it was in seventh grade and it was by far the most dangerous area of town. And I used to have to stay there late at night because wow. my dad worked at the university. So I'd be terrified right. as this you know, seventh grader after basketball practice. Uh, but you know, I also think that to some degree, probably I have certain biases about that neighborhood, um, just baked into how I was raised. Right. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, what about what about those kind of environments do you think that we have misperceptions about from you know media like my immediate thought was oh this is probably just like boys in the hood right uh, so like how accurate is stuff like that well i would i would look at it like differently right a little bit i would say i mean I, you're right in the sense that folks have their biases uh about um neighborhoods like that but i think what people don't think about is what were the conditions and policies that were put in place to make these neighborhoods the way they were, you know? So um, like police, the way the neighborhood was policed um, and, you you know, people just being harassed by the police. Cause that's what happened. Like when I was growing up, like police would come through and they would just jump out their pat us down. Um, Folks didn't own their homes. Uh, Folks uh, couldn't get jobs. And so there was a lot of stuff, but these were like based off of like policies that were put in place that kind of like create the atmosphere for these neighborhoods to be dangerous. And so mm-hmm. it's always important for people to to remember that, you know, um, and so that's something that, you know, I don't think people think about enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, you and I were talking about this before we hit record here. Uh, I mean, I remember, you know, uh, Dave Chappelle talking about you know, right. with your an African American man, your relationship to law enforcement is fundamentally different than that of other people. Like you actually have a, a relationship of fear uh, of the very people who are basically put in society to protect you. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's it's embedded in us, and especially in my neighborhood, um, we, it was just all black people, and so our only interaction um, with white people were the police. And when they would see us, like they would, they would pat us down. It wasn't like nice. It wasn't like they wouldn't ask us how our day was. And so we grew up this way. And then when stuff would happen in our neighborhood, like say it was a shooting or something like that. And like folks are like neighbors are called the police. It would take them like 35 minutes to get there, 20 minutes. Or maybe sometimes they didn't even show up. And so this was our relationship with them um, growing up. And so it's just like naturally like, and then we see people on, on TV getting shot by police like all the time. And so it's just something that's like, it's a survival mechanism to just be like, you know, worry of the police. Yeah. What role do do policies actually play in all of this? Because I think that uh, you, you may have seen the Ava DeMornay uh, de uh, documentary. I think that's her name, the yeah. uh, 13. And I remember just being stunned at how sort of marginalized and disenfranchised 
black people are in this system that leads to incarceration. Uh, so I, I wonder, you know, you having had firsthand experience with it, what role does government and policy play in putting us in this kind of a situation? It plays a huge role. I mean, it's it's, it's so it's so important and it's so like high up that folks like on the on, from the grassroots level sometimes, at least like in, in these neighborhoods, can't even comp- comprehend um, like these policies that are put in place. Like you can look at something like the nineteen ninety four Crime Bill um, Act that was put in place. And all these people started getting locked up in, in mandatory um, sentences, like for like crack versus like powder cocaine, and all these things that were put in place was like deliberate. And then you can look at um, like HUD with their uh, uh, housing practices of like not um, allowing like folks to get home loans based on like their race or um, you know it's just a whole bunch of stuff, and it makes a huge difference mm-hmm. um, when it, when you talk about you know, generating wealth for community or improving stuff. And it's like, I mean, all that stuff is deliberate though. It's all, it's all on purpose. How far removed are the people who make policies from the impact that they have on the people who are affected by those policies? Are they like a hundred layers removed? Like are, are, are those people who actually have come and spent time in your neighborhoods? Right. So I think that's, that, that's a bit complicated, right? So it's two things, right? So first I would say perhaps the majority um, the, they are somewhat removed from it and their experience is based on like cases, let's say like, you know, some legislators, like what they know is based on like crime in a certain area, what the news shows them and stuff like that. And so like, that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is folks who may be from, from like our community, even, um, they may, um, feel like they have to assimilate and I've witnessed this firsthand, like have to assimilate with the powers that be like I, I've been able, I've tried to pass uh, legislation for like juveniles who were sentenced to um, life and sentence to help them with possibly parole. They help them get a chance to get parole. Cause you don't get that in the state of Maryland. And I presented it to, to folks who are like from like the community and behind closed doors, they would say, well, I think it's a good idea, but I'm not going to vote for it because like the chairman of like the committee isn't for it. And so there's no point in me, you know, voting for it. And it was just a strange thing to see. And it's like, but you from like, you know, like this is a good thing and they'll tell you, but it's like, it's based on the political climate and like that backdoor stuff with politics, which is just crazy. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense. So, you know, one of the things that you wrote in the book is you said every child needs a safe space. They need love and quiet to think. They need an adult they can talk to and a hot meal on the table once in a while. I wasn't getting that. I was trying to provide that for my mother, get her fed, make her warm, keep her safe. Right. And I can't help but think that that is not isolated to only you as a child. And and I wonder, you know, what is this experience like for children in these kinds of neighborhoods? And what is the, the, the byproduct? Like what kind of behavior does it lead to for them as a result? And and I would say is, is millions of young people all around this country that, that experience that. And I mean, just think about it. Like how, how is a child supposed to focus in school, if like they didn't even have dinner like the night before, every times where like I just was hungry, and you know how how are you going like pay attention in school um, if you're going through stuff like this in life and all kinds of stuff like people being shot in front of my house and there was no therapist, there was no someone to sit down and say how do you feel about like what you saw, you know even my grandmother was a bit desensitized and she would just say don't worry about it, just uh, say your prayers 
and get up and go to school, it's going to be okay. And it's like, I can't stop thinking about what I saw. And mm-hmm. a lot of kids go through these t- kind of things. And when they go to school, they're oftentimes uh, misdiagnosed uh, and, and teachers will put them out the class. But really, it's like some stuff that happened at home, like some traumatic experiences that they probably have been through. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having been through this experience yourself, um, how much of your work is driven by a, a desire to potentially change this uh, for future generations and kind of change the trajectory that they're headed down? I mean, I commit, I'm committing my life to it. And part of my my deal with the man or woman upstairs um, was that, like, if I was given a second chance, I would commit my life to um, addressing, like, these um these issues in society. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's a big driver. Um, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, I think there's no question that w- we should give people second chances. How do you change the narrative with people who believe that, oh, you know, these people don't deserve second chances? I, I remember Joe Loya said something to me uh, that really struck me. He said, you know, we say, okay, this guy is a murderer. He said, you know what? He was a murderer for the one minute that he took somebody's life and it was in self-defense. And, and, you know, I think Brian, uh, Brian Stevenson has said, you know, we tend to define people by the worst thing that they've ever done, particularly the incarcerated. But if any of us who weren't incarcerated were defined by the worst thing we'd ever done for most of us, it would be pretty damn bad. And I wonder, you know, how you begin to shift that idea of people being defined by the worst thing that they've ever done. So I think about this a lot. Um, I, I, the first thing is I have to I have to live and operate as an example of someone who has once made a mistake. Like when I was younger, as a child, like I committed my crime when I was seventeen. But uh, I want people to see like the person that I become today, the work that I've done, um, the stuff that I'm striving towards, and it's important to do that because you know oftentimes I mean people know now because they have a book out, but Folks, just the way I carried myself, like wouldn't know that I had been in prison for all those years. And it's important for us to, to tell other people's stories, the success stories, because we always hear the other. We always hear about someone who came home and like messed up. And we, we need to tell our stories and, and keep doing it. And like, that's the first thing we need to do. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to actually come back to that because I think there, there's something there. I want to talk about the process of getting out of prison because I, I had a, I had a guest here once who told me she said getting out is almost harder than, than oh, going yeah. in. Yeah, uh, so I, I do want to ask you about that. But uh, before we get to that, let, let's talk about going in. Uh, I think there, there's one thing that really struck me in the book, and I, I actually had this bolded when I pulled up my notes. You said, honestly, part of me was relieved to be in prison. For the first time in years, yeah. I felt safe. I had food, not good food, but sort of edible on the outside. I never slept. And I, I wonder what was that first moment of being in prison like? Because I think that, you know, when I see documentaries where half the people that are in places like jails actually don't belong there, they're only there because they can't afford bail. I think, wow, what a tragedy. Like these people aren't even being, you know, properly processed through our justice system. We had a, we had a criminal justice attorney here. He said that people play, take plea bargains all day long and oh, yeah. plead guilty to things they're innocent of because they're so terrified of, of what a sentence could mean. Right. And, and, they, and they rightfully so. You should be terrified because... It's not the system isn't just. I mean, people would think it is, but like if they think, if they think you did it, then you, then you're getting found guilty. So there's no such thing really as like a reasonable like doubt. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. so it's a scary it's a scary uh, place we live in. Yeah. So what is that first moment like when you realize one you've been sentenced, but then you know walking into prison for the first right. time? 
so for me, for me, it was it was a bit strange because when I was um, being transported onto to the compound, the prison compound, I noticed that uh, the prison I was in, it had women, a women's facility on the compound. So I saw like a, a line of women. They were inmates. And I saw them. I was like, this is strange. Um, and then I remember going into inside the prison and then they, it was about eight of us and they just stripped us naked and they were just searching us for contraband and stuff. And then they made us bend over and like we had to cough and like squat. And then it was like, hold the position. And then we had to hold a position and then they laughed at us. So like my first experience was being like humiliated. And then it was like, at that point it was like, I became a, a number, you know, or inmate Wilson or two, six, five, nine, seven, five. And it was just, you know, I, I, I walked through the facility. It was men who've been in there 30, 40 years, um, all kinds of madness going on. People getting tattoos and push-ups, and people like reading books in the corner. And it was just loud and it smelled bad. It was, I was terrified. Yeah. It was terrified. But, well, I mean, terrified seems like the, the, the sort of, you know, natural reaction. Like I, I, I remember telling Jolea, you know, the guy we had here, I said, I think that my first instinct would be, I'm going to kill myself. Cause that sounds so fucking scary. Some uh, people do it. You know, like I, before I even got there, I would figure out how to do that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I wonder, you know, where, how do you, I mean, now you're there, clearly you survived it. Where does the fear sort of start to dissipate and how do you, how do you adapt to that environment? Right. So I, when I went in, I was, um, at this point I was 18, I was about 120 pounds, probably less than that's how small. And I grew up, I was on a chess team and I knew that, you know, I would play like older people in chess. And so what I was able to figure out was that I have to think my way. I can't, I can't like defend myself like physically against these huge like dudes in, in this prison, but I got to think my way out of this situation. And that's what I thought. And so I, I would just be observant. I would watch what would go on. And usually like when people got in trouble, it was because they started something like they gambled, they didn't pay their bills or somebody like, you know, started something, then someone responded to it. And so it was actually pretty um, structured. Like it wasn't like just some wild folks randomly going around, like targeting people. I know that happens sometimes, but it wasn't like that. And so I just, I, I just kept my head down. I, I minded my business, and and people didn't say anything to me. Huh. Is it? I mean, if you do that, is it easy to avoid trouble, or is is yeah, is a situation absolutely. where trouble can find you, whether you want it or not? Trouble, trouble can find you, um, but most of the time. At least like if you mind your business and you just like do what you got to do, for the most part, folks not going to bother you. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that was my experience, with, you know, um, while I was in there. But a lot of stuff was happening around me. People did get killed. Um, you know, there was rapes and there was suicides. There was drug overdoses. Like all that stuff happened all the time. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so there's another thing that, uh, I, I want to ask you about that. You said, you know, your society didn't put me in prison. I would never say it did, but society created the cave society, put obstacles in the way of yeah. black people, slavery, lynchings, redlining, job discrimination, voter discrimination, and all manner of segregation, official and otherwise, then criticizes when we didn't rise above it. And, um, I think that was such an important line in the book, yeah. Yeah. uh, you know, and I wonder, you know, so for most of us from the outside, fortunately, we're never going to get an inside view into this, um, you know, we get to hear stories like yours. So I, I wonder, you know, what do you think that people who are outside of prisons have as misperceptions about the people that are inside? Like, what do, you, do we, do we, 
inaccurately like just marginalize them and write them off as the the most terrible people in society? I would say, yeah, I would say the latter. Um, But and I think what the folks on the outside looking in don't understand is like how these conditions were created to get people in there. And and if you go back in history, you know, when I went to college when I was in prison, and I started studying my um, history and the civil rights movement and stuff. And I just, I started getting upset because like stuff was put in place to create the conditions. You know, people were being stripped of their rights to vote. Um, people um, were being like arrested, like for like my, misdemeanors, minor offense, drug offense. You know, people had drug, drug um, addictions and get like 20 years for like two rocks or cocaine. Just like crazy stuff. But all that stuff was by, by design because if you look at like slavery and then like Jim Crow and then like all these different errors, like it never went away. It just metamorphosized itself into like this prison industrial complex. And they, they made a business out mm-hmm. of it. And there's all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff that goes on behind the scenes they, to perpetuate this stuff. So one thing I remember watching a, a Michael Moore documentary, and he was talking about the fact that pretty much every corporation you buy things from actually uses prison labor for pennies on the dollar. For Banks, the you know, yeah. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, you'd mentioned in books and, and college, like, so how do you decide when you get in there, how you're going to spend your time and how much of it is, you know, sort of unstructured and how much of it are you literally just behind bars? Right. So you're always, well, in the prison that I was in, it was a, a special program where you had to go to therapy, you, um, you had to work a job. And so you were pretty much out your sale, like most of the day, and you could earn your way over time, over a few years. Um, they had levels and you can earn your way to like a, like the fourth level where your sales all didn't lock and you can stay out. Um, but you still had to work and go to therapy and do stuff like that. You had like a pool table and like TV. So you had that stuff like on, on those levels. Um, but, um, a person could choose like not to do anything. They could smoke weed all day, maybe like work a job, like sweeping a floor somewhere and, and not do anything. Or, you could choose to use your time wisely like the way I did. I, I wrote down my plan of like things that I wanted to learn, things I wanted to do. And I just had like a lot of structure. And then I would structure like time for me to exercise and then maybe watch a few TV shows. And so I would I, I did that my entire incarceration. Wow. Did you do that right from the, the, the get-go, like right when you started? No, about about 18 months to two years. And my first year, and I was just smoking weed every day and I was depressed. I was staring out the window. Wow. Uh so this is another thing you said, they call it rock bottom. Like it's a hard floor you go crash into and stop, but here's the thing. There's no floor. You can only see it that way later because rock bottom isn't a place. You can always go lower. Rock yeah. bottom is a decision. It's the moment you decide to stop falling and take control of your life. And, you know, I think that what I wonder is when you're in a situation where you've been incarcerated, where you have this really long sentence, uh, how do you actually see a possibility for your future? So I, I, I call it um, a positive delusion, and I had I had faith. For the most part, I had faith that I could get out. Um, there were some people around me who had life sentences as well, who like were working towards getting out of prison, working on their case. And then I looked around and I would see everyone else who like some people who just like giving up and just like you know hurt people, getting tattoos and just like doing you know starting trouble, all kinds of stuff in, in the building. And I just decided that like, I wanted, I knew I was a good person. So I wanted to prove it to myself. I wanted to prove it to everyone else. And so 
I just took it serious. And even if I, I wasn't going to get out, I was choosing to believe that if I just keep studying, I could keep working, then like, you know, that's what a good person like would do. And so I was just deliberate with doing it. But like people around me would say, man, you're crazy. You never getting out of here. What's the point of all of this? But I just stuck to it. So I, I remember one story in the book in particular. It was about the first business you started. Uh, yeah. I was wondering if you could share that with us because I thought it was so brilliant. Photography business? Yeah. So yeah. So um, my my friend and I, we started studying business in there. We got a subscription to Wall Street Journal and then a couple other subscriptions. But I remember we would read a popular science magazine all the time. And what we were trying to do was trying to look at new technology that was coming out. And I remember one time we cracked it open and we got the magazine and it was like digital cameras. You can like print as many pictures, photos as you want. And I was like, this is crazy. And we had a, we had a Polaroid camera in the prison and that was like what the, the photographer used. Right. And I was like, I can't believe this. And so then we like put our heads together and we were like, look, how about we write up a business plan and put together a proposal and we could uh, sell the tickets for um, pictures through commissary. Folks can put them on their commissary list and order picture tickets. We can raise the price. We can, um, you know, make it like where we have like a good profit margin. It was just like like how you would do like any other business. And we put together a proposal and we pitched it. And our thing was, we'll use this money to um, put it towards the inmate welfare fund account. So like we need new basketballs. We need it. Um, like a pool table, ping pong table, and like stuff around the prison, we had funds that could cover the cost of that. And what I got out of it was, you know, I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I figured like this would be a good test run before I get out. <clears throat> and so we did it. We had $600 left in our account and I pitched it. I asked them to pay me um, double pay because like I think back then we were getting like 38 bucks. And I was like, all right, just pay me $70 a month. Let me hire some people, some photographers. And I want to see the monthly printouts of sales every month. And they mm-hmm. agreed to it. And we started making money. We turned that $600 into $1,200. We turned it into $20. And then it t- we went to $40. And then they took the money from me. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, it's so crazy. So one, how did the money get taken? And, and two, uh, you know, how did you still maintain hope uh, after the money was taken? And the third one, I, I think one of the things that you mentioned that I thought was really fascinating is that you, know, you were looking at using that money to, to make other people better off. And right. I wonder, you know, is looking out for each other like that common or, or do people tend to have more of an every man for himself mindset? I would say, I would say like 30% folks in there are like the type that's like trying to look out for other folks. But for the most part, most people just try and look out for themselves and just trying to get back home to their family. So I understand that, but they are like, they're always like a, um, a small group of people who try to keep order in the prison and try to do for like the greater good. And so, um, I guess I just <laughs> was one of those people. Um, and so when, like when that happened, I was upset, but what I was happy about because I always try to see good and stuff, was that I was able to create, I was able to come up with an idea, pitch it, um, and then make money. And so even though I was upset that the money was, because um, like the way they started, they said, well, we're going to take the money out your account, the account that it was in, and we're going to put it in our account, and then we're going to earmark it for you guys to use. And my first question was, why do you need to take it out the account? Why does it need to go in that account? Because I, I, I heard that like when you start a business, like different accounts, like stuff used for this, this is used for that. Like, why are y'all doing that? 
And they was like, no, nah, it's fine. I was like, I still want my monthly printouts. So they stopped giving me the printout. So that's when it was a flag. I was like, okay, something's going on. And then so when that happened, we said, well, let's see, let's picture them to use that money to, to put cable in, um, in the sales, just like that standard cable in the sales. And with the condition that like folks would just like chill out and relax. And it was just like a way for like folks that can lock in any sales, they can watch their shows and won't be out like causing trouble. And so everybody was happy about this. And so we put together a proposal and I pitched it to them and it was like, the money's gone. And I was like, what do you mean? What's the money? And it was like, you spent it. And I was like, no, I didn't. It was like, yeah, those security cameras. That's up. You pay for those. And so I was, I was devastated by it. But like, what could I do? Mm. Don't do anything. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It, it, it's amazing. I, you know, I feel like you, you spend your whole life um, basically dealing with people who are in positions of authority who should be there to protect you and see you, right. you know, better off. And every one of them seems to basically betray you. All my life. All yeah. my life. Even my mom's, my mom's boyfriend, he was a police officer. Like, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, all my life. Um, so, you know, one thing that, like I said, I, what got my attention so much about the story is the the books you read. You, I mean, you wrote this article about the books that you read in prison. Yeah. And the one that really caught my attention was the fact that you mentioned the Forty Eight Laws of Power, which, uh, you know, for anybody who hasn't read it, is just a mind fuck of a book. Right? Yeah, it's spectacular. <laughs> So I, I wonder, uh, you know, how you took the concepts of forty-eight laws of power, and how did the, how did those those ideas play out in navigating the dynamics of prison? So I would I would say so. Robert Greene, I think his first book was The Art of Seduction, and then the second was Forty-Eight Laws of Power, oh. and that I I read all of his books, but that book in particular, The Forty-Eight Laws of Power, was very critical for me because, and I actually when I got it, I put a um, a paper bag. I made a, a book cover and covered it so people wouldn't know what I was reading. But it was the equivalent of like in the Matrix when they mm-hmm. when they, they explained it to Neo and you start yeah. to see the code. Uh huh. And so once I read the book, I read the book a couple of times, and then I would come out my cell and I would just see everything just playing out like stuff <laughs> that I read. And like the the, the Forty Eight Laws can be kind of like you know Machiavellian and, and kind of like you know um you know like cruel, but it allowed me to see like see like moves and stuff before it happened. And so it helped me like navigate the prison system. And then uh, it was just, it was just a good book. It's a good mm-hmm. book. Yeah. So the other thing that really struck me was that you became fluent in multiple languages while you yeah. were in prison. Uh, so the thing that I, I wonder about that is how do you go to b- becoming fluent? Because I know one of, at least from learning a couple of languages, one of the biggest things that leads to fluency is the ability to converse with other people. Uh, right. and I don't imagine you would have access to that. So how in the world did you become fluent in multiple languages? So I, so I did have access to, um, to foreign language speakers, uh, when I was in, it didn't start that way. It, it started out like, I guess like the first two years I studied Italian and uh-huh. I think it was maybe like one or two Italians in there, but they didn't want want to deal with me because I was black. But <laughs> um, so so like they didn't want to talk to me. I think it was like some mafia guys or something. So like they didn't want to talk to me. So I studied that and watched like these Italian shows and read books and and, and listen to CDs and study. But then um, a lot of folks from El Salvador and Colombia um, were coming into the prisons, and at this point I was studying Spanish, and I would um, just like. I started a, a language group and I would um, invite these guys to come in and get them into like studying, you know, they needed to polish up on their English too. And so we just studied the language and wow. I didn't really have anything else to do. So I would just, just be conjugating verbs like at, at the, at the uh, dinner table or like early in the morning with flashcards and stuff. And so, um, and I continue to do it. I'm still a student of like many languages. And, and now that I've like traveled around and I use the languages often every day, actually, um, it's, it's been like very useful. So I think my, my first thought that came to mind when you mentioned that is, isn't prison like an incredibly racially divided environment and 100%. So how does that, how does that, I mean, and then you're talking about, you know, conversing with Hispanic inmates. So how yeah. does that actually like, does that build a bridge between this divide, um, to be able to do it that way? 
Uh, I just wonder how you navigate that aspect of it. So it definitely builds um, a bridge. It takes time, right? It takes like you have to develop like some trust Mm -hmm. um, with folks. But you're right, though. Like it's it's 100 percent. Like second grade, as soon as you come in, if you white, you go to that corner. If you're Hispanic, you go to that corner. If you're black, you go to that corner. And like, that's how it is. But like, I just was different, right? I wasn't in any, any gangs. I wasn't like, I just was like a, a cool dude. And well, at least I thought it was cool. But, uh, <laughs> and um, I would just approach these these folks and say, listen, I'm studying. Um, this is what I'm working on. I'm working on Spanish. Um, you know, some of these guys, like like most of them like, needed some help with like their English. And I was like, I can help you with your English. You help me with Spanish. Um, I'm working down in the school. And I just was cool. And it took a while, right? But like after a while, folks were just like, he's a good dude. I, I like him. And so they would come come through and um and we would study together. And that that went on for years. Hmm. It was great. So tell me about the the sort of crafting of the master plan. Like I, I saw it and I was like, wow, this is, you know, this is an incredibly ambitious list of goals for somebody. Yeah. Facing a really lengthy sentence, and I, I looked at it and I was like, "Wow!" I'm like, "You've actually done a lot of the things on yeah. that plan." Uh, so tell yeah. me about coming up with that plan and, and executing it. Because I, I, I was thinking to myself, so "Like, there's people who don't have anywhere as near as adversive circumstances, <laughs> and they can't accomplish this." Right. So it, it started like like my first year in prison, about year to like 18 months. I was smoking weed. I was depressed, staring out the window, and I just kept thinking, like, "You know, how was my life over?" Like, what, why do I got to grow old and die here when, like, I'm a good dude? And I knew, like, I committed my crime. I didn't start it. Like, these people came after me. It was a whole thing. But I did what I did. But I was like, how? why would they send me away for the rest of my life for that, though? And I was like, I got to prove to myself and to everyone else that my life is redeemable. I know I'm smart. And so I want to show people. And so I started thinking about what's my end game? Like, who would I be? like at the age of like 40, like who would I be like, like when I'm older? What kind of person? And so I knew that I wanted to be like an entrepreneurial entrepreneur. I wanted financial independence. I wanted to be able to travel around the world. Um, but most importantly, like I wanted to be free again. And I wanted to go back into neighborhoods like the one that I grew up in and, and be a positive example and leave people, leave people out of like that, that figurative cave of thinking that the world is just about their block or just like their neighborhood. And so once I wrote all that stuff down, I sent a copy to the judge and, t- and a copy to my grandmother. And I taped another copy on my wall and I just started, I just went to work. I just, I started with my GED and got people to tutor me. So I got my high school diploma in like two months. And then I was like, wow, that was quick. Like may- maybe I am smart. And then I just got into vocational um, shops and started doing carpentry and like sheet metal and I just, I fell in love with like the, the process of learning new things and I just never stopped. Wow. Uh, so I, I want to talk about getting out and, um, you, you, you said some really interesting things about getting out. You said that, you know, parole is brutal. Our system is not set up for men and women released from prison to succeed. It's actually set up for them to fail. And this really struck me. You said prison strips you down to the essentials. The release system steals everything uh, right. When you come out of prison in the United States, you have nothing of your own, no money beyond the $50 they hand you in an envelope, no possessions except for outfits, the maximum, and a few personal items, no job. You're not allowed to contact anyone inside, so you're completely cut off from your friends and mentors. There are no therapy sessions, no training programs, no services, maybe a few little things like a dusty, outdated job center, but no bed, no food, no shelter, and no support. Absolutely. Talk to me about your own experience of getting out. I- like, What is that first day like? Well, when I got out, I was released in Baltimore. Um, they gave me my $50. Um, as soon as I left the facility, it started raining. 
And I was trying to figure out how to call. Like I had a phone number for like one of my friends to pick me up, but I was trying to figure out how I could convince someone to allow me to use their cell phone to call, right? There was no pay phones when I got out. They didn't, like pay phones were gone. And, and folks were like terrified. It was like, I'm, I'm not going to let you, what? No, what, why do you want to have a phone? And I didn't want to tell them like I just got out of prison. But I ended up offering a guy $10 for him to call my cousin on his phone, on the speakerphone. And he ended up, the guy was nice too. And he ended up like not accepting the $10. But then when I got home, um, you know, I just was like under a lot of anxiety because as soon as you get out, you got to check in with your parole officer, uh, like 24, within 24 hours. And then they're, they're telling you, you need to get a job as soon as possible, but you got to check in with them twice a week. So even if you get a job, you got to come in twice a week for your analysis and they make you pay for the analysis. Um, it's just a lot of expectations and it's kind of like they set you up to fail, mm-hmm. but I mean, I, I knew what I was getting myself into. I knew that I had, I used to have a life sentence. So I was like, whatever I got to do, like to stay free, like I'm going to just, I'm going to make it happen. And so I would show up for my parole meetings. I, would, I, I went to Marshall's. I Googled like a, a place to go to where I can get like some good clothes for cheap. And so I got some clothes, like some suits and stuff from Marshall's. And I would dress up every time I went to go see my probation officer. I had my resume. I had my master plan. I was like, this is what I'm working on. I'm going to try to get back in school. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And it actually kind of worked. She kind of like um, softened up towards me. And I, you know, I, I was able to get a job in about 52 days, which is mm-hmm. like a miracle. Um, and I was able to get a good job and I got health care and it was doing the work that I wanted to do. I wanted to do community organizing and workforce development. And that's how I started out. And I still had to go check in with my probation officer, but I just made sure I did everything I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I I remember having a conversation with somebody about it is just how much of a a sort of culture shock it is to come out of prison, particularly because you're so overstimulated. Uh, this person I talked to said that she couldn't even go into a grocery store or to big box stores because of the fact that it would just give her immense amounts of anxiety to go into something like that, like even a shopping mall, because there's so many people, so many things going on. Uh, and that was really shocking to me. Uh, so, so I wonder, you know, what is the culture shock? Like, do you, you know, I remember even hearing stories from another guy who did two life sentences. Like, wow, wait a minute. Like there's no iPhone when you went into prison. So (laughs) all this stuff, did you experience that yourself? Like there's all this stuff heard of and what was that like oh i thought people were crazy i was like why is everybody like walking around talking to themselves and, and <laughs> my friends were like it's earpieces or like speakerphone and i was like really like i just thought like i just see people just walking and just like talking and stuff and it was like they got an earpiece in their ear chris and yeah. i was like this is so crazy and you know just going in like to order food or right in the grocery store it's like so i mean for folks in the outside world it's like oh it's easy you just swipe this boop it just beeps and it's, it's done and we we just wasn't like used to that because like, we've been away for a while and it's just like it's so much it's, it's so like overstimulating mm-hmm. and like apps and people got apps and all this stuff and we're just like you know you it just takes you a while to um, acclimate to yeah. it. What you know? I mean, you say that we set people up to fail. So yeah. how do we how do we have more stories <laughs> like yours? Like what needs to happen so that we end up with more stories like yours? I believe. Um, the key to me turning my life around was through my education that I received uh, when I was in prison. So education and then the therapy. Um, I did therapy my entire incarceration, but most importantly, um, the education. So I think I believe my programs was funded by the federal uh, Pell Grants. 
and which um, allows a certain percentage of that money to fund um, state um, institutions. And and data supports this like everywhere, right? Folks who get some education, even a little bit of uh, college, um, drastically reduces their likelihood of recidivating and going back to prison, right? And so once I started educating myself and started learning trades, and it's like once someone learns how to do all this stuff, like knowledge is powerful. It's like no one's going to come out and like break in your car, like rob you if they know how to like start a business or like fix a car and stuff. They're going, you know, people going to go do that stuff, like and, mm-hmm. and do positive mm-hmm. stuff. And everyone, it was about 150 people in the prison that I was in that went to college with me. Most of them graduated. And at least half of them, when they got out, they went back to college. But all of them stayed home. You know, they started families, every last one of us. And mm. we're out. And so folks, the flip side is folks on the outside can say, well, why do I have to pay for college? And you guys are in prison, you get a free education. But we, folks on the outside Taxpaying citizens are actually paying for them to be incarcerated anyway, and they're not getting a return on their money. So, like, mm-hmm. someone breaks into your car and like steals your radio, and then yeah, like they committed a crime, they should they should be punished. And so, like, they do some time, but while they're in there, they don't have nothing to do. And so, but they become smarter, a smarter criminal, and they get around to other people who breaking in cars. They don't have nothing to do. So all they're talking about is like, how can we be better? But like, how can we learn from like what happened? And then when they get out, next thing you know, like they don't want breaking your car, they're breaking into your house and they're doing whatever. You want right. people to go to prison and, and correct any like social deficiency they may have had or whatever. I want you to come home and like, don't bother me. Like right. as a citizen, like that's what I would want. And I think everyone wants that. And the money that we would save, we can put that into the schools and keep people from going into prison in the first place. Yeah. Do you actually think that prison leads to rehabilitation? And the reason I ask this, um, you might have seen it. Uh, there's a do- Michael Moore did this uh, documentary called Where to Invade Next. And one of the parts that really struck me was he went and visited the Norwegian prison system. Yeah. And I, I remember just being shocked at how different that prison system was. And then he said, okay, let me go to a maximum security facility. And in a maximum security facility, the guys had their own rooms. One of them had an Xbox. They had a music label where they were like, you know, recording albums. So I wonder, do you think our criminal justice system here in the United States actually leads to its intended outcome? I I believe, so we call it like corrections. I believe that most prisons don't correct anything. They make it worse. In America, it's about punishment. It's punitive. And so it's all about punishment and not even just while you're in prison. Like once you get branded, like they want to punish you for the rest of your life. And that's just like how it works. But it goes it goes back to what I said earlier when I talked about like slavery, like never went away. Like this is a control mechanism, a, a way to just like suppress uh, certain populations too. Um, and then it's like, you know, it's all about money in this country too. So they figured out a way, you know, how America, like how to make money off of this stuff and how to like maintain power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I remember being horrified to see that um, a good amount of our prisons here were for-profit corporations that oh, yeah. actually benefit the more people they put in prison. I was just like, wow, that's how you base your stock prices. Like, I, I, like to me, I thought, how does somebody who is a CEO of a company like this wake up every morning and live with themselves? Like, what kind of conscience is that? Yeah, it's horrible. And I, I imagine they just look at their bank accounts. Like, yeah. like, think about this, right? So in the state of Maryland, um, the average... Um, prisoner makes about $25 a month. And for us to call home for 30 minutes to talk to our family costs $10. Wow. One phone call. And so like, and monthly, like usually folks want to buy like deodorant, they need to get their cosmetics or whatever. Like that's not even enough money to stretch through a month, but like one phone call, 
And like they mark these prices up. And what happens is that the, the family will say, all right, well, I'm going to just pay the bill. And families are paying hundreds of dollars for their phone bill just to talk to their loved ones. These corporations are pocketing that money. And when they do it, they give kickbacks to the prisons. Mm. And they just keep they just keep it going. Same thing with the food, the commissary, everything. You want clothes, you got to buy from this distributor, this this seller, this prison seller. And so, like, they've been able to do that stuff. And then, they you know, they lobby and they keep the people in power. They keep them making money. Mm-hmm. So one thing you mentioned is that a big part of your work is to prevent people from ending up down your path. And I kind of wonder, when you right. talk to youth who you see headed down, you know, the path that you are headed down uh, that are in your community, what is their response? Do they resist what you're telling them? And if so, how do you overcome that? Um, and are some of them just like, yeah, I don't care. This is my fate. So I think most of the time folks listen. And like even now, like I've, I've been on tour for a couple of weeks. And I've been getting hundreds of messages um, from people and, and some young people. I think they listen. But the important thing is when I'm when I'm talking to young people is it's, it's always more effective if I look like them and if I come from where they come from. And because I remember when I was young and people would tell me, you need to get a job or you, you could do this, you could start your own business. And I was like, well, I don't know anyone who looks like me who's ever done it. So like, what makes me special? How am I going to be able to do it? And, you know, I just think it's important for, for young people to see people who've done it, who've been successful. And so um, I usually I usually resonate with young people, but it's always going to be some folks. It's like they're just not ready. They haven't hit their rock bottom yet, and they're just going to do what they want to do. It's always a couple people like that, but usually people listen. Usually mm-hmm. people listen. But the, the most important thing with young people when we're trying to convey like these positive messages to them is we got to be consistent. And I remember this like vividly, like when I was young, like my aunt was successful. And like one day she came and picked me up and took me out and got me something to eat and told me like, I could do this and I can do that. You know, I could start my business or, you know, I could, you know, I could start a lawn care business. I can do, you know, some stuff to make money and be successful. And then she dropped me back off and never gave me any more advice. And so I was like, how am I supposed to do it? Like, what's the first step? Are you going to help me write something up? And and it was, that was it. And so like, we got to be consistent. Like if you want to help or if we care, we got to show that we care. Cause like if young people see that we don't care, then they're going to be like, well, you don't care. Why should I care? Absolutely. So speaking of young people, I, I know that uh, from having read the book that you have a son. Yeah. And, uh, you had actually talked about this. And, and one of the things I wonder is having not had your own father in the picture, uh, what impact has that had on the relationship that you have with your son and the kind of father that you're being to him? So it's, so it's complicated, right? My, my dad wasn't in my life growing up. Um, and then like my son, my son was actually like my motivation. Most, like most of my motivation was like to get back home to be um, a father to him. And I finally made it out. And by the time I got out, like my son's like running with a gang. He's like running from the law. He ended up getting some time and done a couple years. And while he was away, I was just getting on my feet. I started my first company. I started doing like really well. And then he finally comes back into my life. And um, there's some tension, but he understood you know, what I had grew up with and like what I had been through. And so we kind of rekindled our relationship and eventually he started working for my company and everything was good. Um, it was, it was, you know, some really happy moments. He actually just moved in with me too. I got a house and they moved in and it was just, it was cool. It was family. And then he made a mistake and then, um, like caught another charge 
And then he ended up doing another year in jail. And then he came home and then somebody shot him. And he almost died a couple of times. And then just like they do all over America, they uh, overprescribed him um, the um, um, Oxycontin pills. And and right now, currently, like he's, he's battling addiction. Wow. And so it's difficult, too, for me, especially because I help so many people since I've been home, hundreds of people. And yet I can't help him. Like the only thing he can do is like, you know, check himself into um, rehab or try to get some help. But he's just scared because he gets so sick. Mm -hmm. And so it's a challenge, you know? Yeah. Do so you mentioned that you have, you know, your contact is cut off uh, with people who you spent time inside with. Does that ever change at any point? Like, are you ever able to go back and be sort of a model of what's possible for them? Yeah. At this point, I'm able, I go into the prisons. I'm able to do it now. I had to get permission. Um, so this is because of all the work that I've done and all the wars that I won. Like folks know like that I'm a good person. So I've, I go into the prisons and speak and I go visit people and support. I even fund some programs um, behind the fence, um, some um, college education programs. And so um, it's, it's good. Like it's good. It's a good feeling to go in there and, and be a positive um, role model towards people. So I guess, is there anything that you would want people who are listening to this to know that you think that they don't or, or need to know um, that you and I haven't covered? Uh, their parents who listen to this who homeschool their children with the content, so I'd wonder what you'd want to tell them. Uh, and just anybody else who's listening, like what ideally would be a, an outcome that we could achieve together uh, if you could have them do something? I would, I would say this. Um, I, there's nothing special about me. Um, I, I've been successful, but only because a handful of people saw potential in me when I didn't see it in myself and nurtured me, mentored me, um, and showed me love, which allowed me to get out of prison, which allowed me to um, come home and be successful. And people still do this for me today. And so I would hope that other people um, would identify the Chris's or Christine's in their neighborhood and, and show them some extra love, mentor them, tutor. Um, that would be one thing. The second thing is I want people to know that, you know, children's lives are redeemable. Like I went to prison as a child. Children are still being charged as an adult sent off to prison. I want the world to understand what these young children go through before they commit these crimes or get incarcerated and that their lives matter, that they make these decisions, their brains aren't developed, and that they deserve second chances. We have so many people, at least in Maryland, we have 300 people who are serving life sentences who were sent to prison as children. And like, I just think it's wrong. And so I want people to understand that like these, these are, these people are still our children. Yeah. Wow. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What do I think that makes someone unmistakable? Yeah. I think, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe resiliency, like, um, Folks who like never give up, who um, who are optimistic about the world. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I can if I can um, if I can answer it. <laughs> Fair enough, that works. Yeah. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with listeners. This has been phenomenal. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me. More uh, about your book and everything that you're up to now. So um, people can find more about my book at my website, chriswilson.biz.biz. 
Um, I'm very active. Um, I've been painting for the past two years and selling my work all around the world. And I've been posting my work on my Instagram page, which is Chris Wilson Baltimore. And my Twitter page is Chris Wilson Bolt. Um, and folks should follow me and follow my journey and show some love to the other Chris's of the world. Pay it forward. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, 
K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.